0: In the high desert in the great american southwest i'm art bell slamming india radio like a supercharged nanoparticle of unopinion. my name is george Napp. i'm richard serrett
1: this is ghani willis i'm george nori welcome to coast to coast am it's great to be here Welcome to Coast to Coast PM, the number one unofficial Coast to Coast AM podcast. We are two brothers that analyze the world's largest overnight paranormal radio show known as Coast to Coast AM. My name is Paul, and I'm the guy that listens to this inexplicable radio show here with my brother. Hey, it's Chris. I'm the Hobbs to your Calvin, and we are both extremely well-versed in Calvin Ball. That is... what's Calvin Calvin Ball. Oh, well, maybe we aren't both well-versed in Calvin Ball. Calvin Ball is a game created by Calvin and Hobbes in which there are no rules, and so you just make up rules the whole entire time, which I thought is essentially what we've been doing. Well, that's a fair point. This this entire podcast is basically one giant Calvin Ball then. Just one giant Calvin Ball. So, see, you are well-versed in Calvin Ball. You just didn't know it. I've been doing it this whole time, and I had no idea. Well, Chris, we have a show today that i'm excited to bring to you more making it up as we go along exactly this is going to be an episode from ian punnett's interview with bradley garrett on august 9th 2020 about bradley's book bunker what it takes to survive the apocalypse yes dude we need to know this information right now apocalypse is inching closer and closer per the doomsday clock that, I mean, we're, what, 90 seconds away from uh, the apocalypse, oh, I, think, I guess? I, I think it's like 10 seconds. It's not 10 seconds. It's 90 seconds, I'm pretty sure. I Dude, I think it's like two seconds from Doomsday. Let me look this up. We are 90 seconds from midnight. We are not two seconds from midnight. We're one and a half seconds from midnight, dude. You can see apocalypse looming. Here's my problem. We're closer to midnight now than we were during the cuban missile crisis and that doesn't feel correct to me well dude we also live in the world of infotainment so that doesn't mean anything but anyways all we're saying is we need to know how to doomsday prep and that's what we are going to learn today bradley garrett is actually quite awesome he went and interviewed a ton of different preppers so he has a couple stories from a lot of different types of preppers because there's a lot of different versions of this chris that you can get into so, our guy is a doomsday journalist. He isn't an actual prepper. Yeah, he's an author and an, who wrote okay, a book about it. preppers. Got it, got it. Yeah. All right, cool. So, we're going to be diving into not only how people are prepping, but what it means for our society at large. Man, this is going to get a little heady, so get it, get ready for it. I'm excited. I'm so excited. And this is actually a request from user Louie Mumford from Reddit, who had specifically uh, asked for more Ian Punnett, so we're bringing more Ian just for Louie. Hey, thanks for reaching out, Louie, and uh, I hope we do you proud. But before we get to all of that, Chris, we got to go check in with Tim Banal at the Coast to Coast AM blog. Tim time! So today's article, Michigan woman calls 911 with report of a Chupacabra sighting. Oh my gosh, dude. Is this our first chupacabra i think this is our first time talking about the chupacabra we haven't done any episodes or articles on the chupacabra yet this is one of my favorite cryptids the chupacabra. we should cover Some it very Art excited. loved the chupacabra it's a fun cryptid it's an incredibly fun cryptid dude and i like that kind of tex mex vibe to the chupacabra yeah you know it's crossing the border dude that's the thing borders are made man made constructs man the chupacabra cannot be contained by a man made border That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It is the tax max of cryptology. So to today's article, police in Michigan responded to a rather unusual call this week after a concerned resident reported seeing Chupacabra. Pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. What is the Chupacabra doing in Michigan? You know, the Chupacabra went north for the summer, maybe, and is now, actually, it's way too far into winter. I don't know what it's doing up there. No, dude. I th- I'm i thinking this may have to do with global warming. Oh, it's getting a little too hot. It's too, it's hot, too hot in the Tex-Mex region. It's having to migrate north. You know, no one thought about this as a potential issue with global warming. What is the impact on cryptids? Yes. It's terrible. And as urbanization happens, chupacabras are going to be coming into our cities. We're going to have to be careful. What? Be careful of your dogs and cats. Definitely watch out. So according to a local media report, the strange incident occurred this past Wednesday evening when a woman in the community of Jerome Township phoned 911, claiming the infamous cryptid was lurking outside her home. And as if that were not odd enough, the creature was accompanied by a capybara. A capybara, Paul, is a rodent-like animal found in South America. You are correct that is exactly what that is. I don't feel dumb for not knowing that now because why would I know? Why do you know that? I know what a capybara is because I forget which country it was in South America, but a whole bunch of elites essentially create a created a like one of the first gated communities and the the capybaras who apparently roamed the land in which this gated community happened, just took over the gated community. Like, it was like hundreds of capybara just, like, pooping on lawns and, like, digging through trash and stuff and were a complete nuisance to these incredibly wealthy, like, landed gentry of, like, Bolivia. Well, I kind of like the capybara then, dude. That sounds like a—they're doing the lord's work out here. They're the people's rodent. Also, then they don't live in Michigan. No, that's what I'm saying, dude. All, what are all these creatures doing in this small town in Michigan? Uh, it's chaos. Let's find out. We got we to gotta dig in here. Despite the wholesale weirdness of the call, or perhaps because of it, the police were dispatched to investigate the report of a blood-sucking chupacabra and its docile rodent companion roaming around the area. Can you imagine being the cop that has to take that call? We're going to listen to the dispatch call to the police officer here in a moment. <laughs> B.S. We got it. We got the recording. B.S. I cannot wait to hear this call. Of course, Tim Bernal going to find the call, Chris. Yeah, dude. That's, that's good journalism, Timmy. Good he's journalism. A journalist of the highest caliber. Yes, very he's, high caliber. He's, he's on uh, the shortlist for Pulitzer, I think. As one might imagine, there was neither a chupacabra nor nor a capybara to be found when police arrived on the scene. Sheriff Myrone Green later explained that responding officers, quote, verified there was no evidence of any strange animals, and when the woman was asked why she might have thought that she had seen the creatures, quote, she said she was coming off using some intoxicated substances. (laughs) That's my favorite answer in these stories, dude, and it's actually shocking how often it comes across, especially in tales. Yeah. I mean, it was like the buddy that uh, got murdered by the uh, Bigfoot when they were fishing. Yeah, we were uh, doing some drugs out there and <laughs> Bigfoot came and killed my friend. And it's like, yeah, we were doing some drugs and I saw a capybara, which impressive that the woman knew what this was. Mm-hmm. And a chupacabra. I just love the idea that she calls that in and then the cops show up and she's like, well, I was a little high, so maybe it wasn't that. I was stony baloney, Mr. Officer. So, despite the revelation, the woman did not get into any trouble for making the misguided call to 911 as Green mused that, quote, she honestly somehow believed those animals may have been there. Dude, the officers are just like, I don't want to do the paperwork to take this lady to jail. It's not worth its time. Is not, this is not worth my time. This is not worth anybody's time. It was worth our time though. Let's hear this dispatch call. All right, so the police dispatch call to the officers who are gonna head to the scene. Central fifty one forty seven. He got the call. Fifty one forty seven. Would you village apartments gonna contact with uh, April? Wishes to report an animal, I'll actually believe it's a possible vehicle. Chupacabra. for Can you go again with the animal? A chupacabra, sir, she described. it. 2147. There's been a high amount of sightings for those in that area lately, by the way. There's been a high amount of sightings of chupacabra in the area? Apparently a lot of people have been reporting chupacabras. I also just love the pause when he's like, can you verify the animal? He's like a chupacabra. And then there's just (laughs) five seconds of silence. It's like, yeah, a lot of people are saying that. Yeah, got a lot of chupacabra (laughs) sightings recently. Oh my gosh, dude. I love the 6147. 6147. Guy's (laughs) like, God. Dang it, I was sitting here, having a little nap, eating a donut, watching my Netflix shows, and now I got to take a chupacabra call. This must be how the cops in South Carolina feel whenever they get reportings of a lizard person. Yes. Like, oh, dude, we got to do this again. Where are we, Bishopville? Yeah. Yeah, we got a lot of lizard sightings in Bishopville, South Carolina. We'll be on it. It's the third this month. All right, let's go. All right, let's go. Well, that was our article for this week, Chris. Uh, I hope that the people in Michigan uh, are keeping their eyes peeled for the Chupacabra. They're apparently moving north. That's right, dude. Migrating north because of climate change. Mm-hmm. Alright, so jumping to some housekeeping. We have an email address, send your thoughts, and episode requests to c2cpmpod at gmail.com. It will be in the show notes. If you like the show, please give us five stars on Apple and Spotify. and Smash that subscribe button. We release episodes every Thursday, and that'll make sure that you never miss one. And thank you to everyone who has shared the show with your friends and told people about us. This is entirely organic. Uh, so if you got a friend who's into weird stuff, please send them our link. And lastly, please send in your questions to c 2 gmail.com because we are going to be doing a Q&A episode uh, and want to hear from you about what you want to hear from us. And remember, we're a couple of five-star men, so make sure five stars and comments. Always appreciated. Very much so, and that helps us with the algorithm, too, so other people can find us. It's the best way to support the show is to give us five stars and leave a comment on apple and then also shout out to our listener dustin who also just had a newborn we got a lot of listeners with newborns chris uh but (laughs) i don't know what that says about our podcast that it's like i'm exhausted i'm up at 3 a.m in the morning let me listen to these two guys you know much like coast to coast am chris people are listening to us in the wee hours of the morning, very wee hours of the morning. So to our main portion of today's episode, Ian Punnett's interview with Bradley Garrett on August 9th of 2020. Bradley who wrote the book Bunker: What it Takes to Survive the Apocalypse, available for $18 on Amazon. Oh, nice. Okay. Not terrible. Hopefully there's a lot of good information in there. Yeah, honestly, dude, I'm about to buy this guy's book because he did he gave a great interview. It's oh, a really smart guy. Really smart guy. So to kick things off, you know, Bradley had gone around and he met with a lot of different people that were prepping, right? And prepping can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different folks. But one of the groups that he met with were a lot of evangelical Christians who are actually okay, split right. on the idea of prepping. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're seeing the apocalypse and political happenings every single day. I I spoke to uh, a lot of
0: evangelicals who were, who were prepping and there was a, there was a schism in that community between right. people who were pre-trib or post-trib, and some some of them were telling me, if we're going to make it through to the rapture, we have to have the bunker in place because if we, if we can't make it through the period of tribulation uh, to the moment of rapture, uh, then it's not gonna it's not gonna happen for us. Um, other people told me. No, the moment when, you know, let's say the, horror, the horrible plague hits, you know, not the one we're experiencing now, but one that's much more uh, traumatic, the people that uh, die in that first wave are actually the people that have been, have been lifted, right? And so those are actually the people that have been raptured and people that are left behind, that are left to fend for themselves, they're the ones that are going to go through this, this incredible period of turmoil, Right. Um, whether whether you want to survive that period uh, may indeed be a question of faith. Well, or the fact that you could survive it if you just had enough snacks.
1: So they're just talking about the left behind series made famous by Kirk Cameron, the <laughs> the guy from Growing Pains. Yeah, basically, you know, the, the tribulation period, which is what, seven years, I think. Something, sure. Something like that. Yeah. and yeah the
0: the, the i basic... believe
1: the evangelicals have made up a lot of this lore you know it's kind of like uh, the catholics and um purgatory yeah i mean the basic idea behind it is like you know do we want to live through the tribulation or do we want to like die at the beginning i guess because that means that like we were fully faithful which i think is an right. interesting argument to be made where evangelicals who think the end of the world is coming some of them are actively not preparing for it because that is like their act of faith. Right, right. They're, They're going to be raptured and go to heaven right at the very beginning. So why would they prepare for something that isn't going to happen to them? Now, meanwhile, there are a lot who are preparing. And those people can either be preparing because they think, there's like an imminent nuclear war. They may actually believe in the apocalypse, or they just think like we're gonna have a civil war in the country, and they need something to defend themselves. So right. not everyone's gonna get raptured. Yeah. Or or you may not you may not be a Christian at all, right? A lot of these people right. may just be prepping because they think that geopolitically the world's unstable. So some of these preppers are making really fancy bunkers, and Bradley actually got to visit quite a few of them. Uh, yeah. I there was um there was one bunker in Kansas
0: that. This guy had had purchased it from uh, from the federal government. It was an Atlas F missile silo that was, um, you know, at one point contained an ICBM, a nuclear-tipped ICBM. Uh, At the at the end of the Cold War, of course, it was decommissioned and they pulled the missile silo out. So, what do you do with these things? They're they're dotted around the Midwest, and that this guy, Larry Hall, he bought it for three hundred thousand dollars, and he spent ten million dollars turning it into a survival, um, luxury subterranean condominium complex. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it, he told me that if you, if this was built above ground, it would be the second tallest
1: building in Kansas. Dude, John Rhodes told us about these places. That was what I was going to compare it to is actually what John Rhodes is talking about. Yeah. Which I think, what was that? Episode two? Yeah, that was the reptoids in our hollow earth. So yeah, but these these are preppers who are buying abandoned military facilities and basically just making them for the, them and their family to live into. How do you even find an abandoned missile silo for sale? Who do you talk to about that? Uh, I don't know. Do you think it goes on Zillow? Where do where do they put these abandoned missiles? I have missile no idea. It's I've never seen abandoned missile silo for sale never seen we, that before you're just talking to the wrong people but these are scattered across the midwest because right you know we had our our missile silos so that even if we got bombed that we could still strike back right right so there's a lot of these arounds and a lot of them have been decommissioned because we're not as worried about nuclear war anymore i was about to say paul isn't the state of kansas just essentially a giant bunker of nothingness I think that's a fair point. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, So with this missile silo, Chris, that was really apt that you compared this to John Rhodes because he basically built a small town inside of the missile silo. Of course. So the penthouse is at the bottom
0: of this thing, but he's also got a rock climbing wall in there, a swimming pool. Why not? Three three armories. Uh, He's got a, a, a dog park, a bar, a cinema. Uh, I mean, it was an incredible place to be in. And I, I, I thought exactly the same thing you did. I thought I, I would happily spend three months down here. Uh, in fact, I was just, you know, I was at the tail end of, of finishing the book when I visited the place. And I said, you know, Larry, what you really need is someone to, to, to field
1: test this for you. So why don't you lock <laughs> me
0: in here for three months and I'll finish right. the book and I'll let, I'll let you know how I go?
1: This is unbelievable. This is absolutely inexplicable that this guy just has a whole town inside of a missile silo in the middle of Kansas. And he just he had millions of dollars, apparently, just to spend renovating this so that it it was as fancy as possible. Here's the thing. When the apocalypse comes, though, this guy's going to be set. He could charge whatever he wanted to get inside of this bunker. I don't think you let anyone else in, though. He'll let a couple of people in. He's got to repopulate the earth. I think he lets his family in and maybe if they're a couple family friends, but yeah, I don't think any randos are getting it because what are you going to do with money at that point? If the world's being destroyed, that's true. To- you would, it, you would need to trade like resources or, or something like that, you know, get bring, bring like hydroponic systems or something, something that would allow you to rebuild afterwards. And that's why if you're getting ready for the end of the world, people like buy gold or like, you know, bury money in their backyard. You need to buy liquor because that is yes. going to be the best trading material in the yes. apocalypse. Everyone's going to want booze. Liquor and medicines. Yeah, that's true. Some penicillin would probably be helpful. Yeah. You can get your hands on it. So, so much of how people prep depends on on how they're imagining all of this to play out, right? Because if you think it's going to be a nuclear war, obviously a missile silo, it's probably going to do you some good, Right but that is not how a lot of people necessarily imagine it. So, you know, your your prepping is really all about your imagination, Chris.
0: Preppers, the preppers that I that I interviewed for this book, they call this the, the PAW, the post-apocalyptic world. And um, how they prep has a lot to do with how they imagine the PAW. You know, if you imagine right. that um, uh, after, the, the fabled mutually assured destruction where all out nuclear war takes place and 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 the earth is basically turned into a, a barren toxic landscape you know if you imagine that that's, that that is your armageddon uh then what's the point of prepping because you know you go underground for 3 months and as you say you come out you open the blast door and immediately i mean if you don't die immediately what are you going to do and so a lot of preppers that i spoke to they would they would assign an arbitrary frame of time to the bunkers that they were building. You know, it might be three days or or three weeks or a month. There might not even be a bunker, right? They might just have supplies in their remote location to get a specific period of time, right? Because if you, you have to assign some sort of time to it and you have to imagine that you're emerging to the other side, because as one prepper said to me, The point is not to go into the bunker. It's to come out of the bunker. If you don't imagine coming out of the bunker, there's no point in building it.
1: Paul, I was wondering if you took a look, let's just say there is like a nuclear war. How long would it take before humans can emerge from their bunkers? I mean, I imagine that it would actually, it would be way longer than three months. So as long as you're not at ground zero, right? So if there was a nuclear war and we weren't right next to where the bomb was dropped, it's roughly about like three to four weeks is typically what people say that you need to stay underground before you can come out. But oh wow, that's not as long as I thought it would be. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not quite that long for the radiation to dissipate. Once again, if you're not directly near the blast zone, right, right. But of I, course, I think the big issue is is like uh, you know Bradley was saying. If there's nothing left out there, if there's no people and all these animals just got irradiated and and are dead, like, what do you do? Like, what are you living for? Right. Right. To rebuild eventually, I would think. I guess so. And honestly, man, this, the the first guy's bunker sounds sweet enough where I would just stay there. I mean, you're living to hang out. For a while, dude. For a while. I would, I, you got to have a hydroponic system. I mean, get yourself a sweet hydroponic system grow your food and just try to wait it out for a couple of years, you know, let, let the kind of, cause you're going to have a climate crisis going on. You're going to have some weird migrations and like that nuclear material is going to go into the dirt and stuff. And you're going to be eating nuclear waste. So just wait it out for a while, give yourself a good year or two. Yeah, and and if you have a sweet enough setup, I'm sure these people are like, yeah, I could I could hang out here for a bit, especially if you have family and friends there, right? right. you not alone. If you're alone, psychologically, that would probably take a giant toll on you. Big time, dude. You would have to... I mean, these would have to be little mini arcs, dude. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because I was thinking of Graham Hancock a little bit and his argument that during these meteor events that destroyed you know this this precursor civilization that they were going underground they were building these like little bunkers under the ground or into mountains to hide from the the destruction that was coming from the skies and like you said they would go in there for a few weeks and then they would come out when things looked like they had come down somewhat it's funny that you say that because we are going to talk a little bit about ancient bunkers as well. Uh, so Perfect. put put a pin in that note uh, and, and we'll definitely get there. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I hadn't really thought about that part of prepping before because you usually think of it as like crazy redneck guy, right? Like anyone right. who's watching Last of Us right now, episode three, that's the kind of guy that you think about. And this is this is really different from that. And it's also thinking about what happens after. After the week or three weeks or three months that you think you're going to be down there, how do you imagine you're going to be able to come out and what that what's that world going to look like and how are you going to be ready for it? And Those are really interesting questions. Now, here's another interesting thing, Chris. Did you know that you can timeshare a bunker? I, I'm not surprised by that at all. But
0: the other piece to that is you have to then almost always stay within some reasonable distance away from your bunker. That you this cuts down on that European you know river cruise you've been dreaming about, or something you know you're not going down the Danube? Well, one of the preppers that I met had a had a solution to that he uh, He's called Dr. Drew Miller, and he began constructing his first bunker in West Virginia um, within fleeing distance from washington d c. He's now building a second bunker in Colorado, and eventually, um what he would like to do. By the way, I'm using bunker as a kind of shorthand here. He's, what what he's building are um, uh, secure off-grid facilities. Okay. So it, it, he wants to build a dozen of these eventually all over the country. And what you do is you you buy into these. It's a bit like a timeshare. You know, you pay a thousand bucks a year and you buy into the ranch, Fortitude Ranch. And then when you need to retreat from a disaster, wherever you happen to be in the country. You can retreat to the nearest ranch, and as long as you've got your Fortitude Ranch token, they will open the gates to you. That's the plan anyway.
1: It's kind of an out-of-time share. Dude, that's literally what vault Tech was in the Fallout video games. A private corporation that built vaults all over the United States and then sold spots within those vaults. We're making it real. We're making it real that doesn't that doesn't make me feel good that this exists you know my favorite part about this chris he mentioned the first one being in west virginia it's really close to me i'm like 30 minutes away from this place oh my gosh have you looked up how much it, uh, a a timeshare within this private ranch is i did and it's actually it's it's a really interesting breakdown so he's planning 12 locations across the country like i said ones within about half an hour of me so I may get some tokens for this. Now, it's based on a cryptocurrency model. Nice, of course. So, blockchain can, baby. If you go to fortituderanch.com, you can get all the details on this if you're interested in your, you know, bunker timeshare. But one we'll token put it in the right now. Notes. Yeah, one token right now costs $300. That's now, not that that seems totally attainable. But here's the thing, you need multiple tokens to get in. Okay. So, to get How many a, tokens do you need? To get a 5-year stay in a quote, "Spartan-like accommodation," it costs 11.5 tokens, which is about $3300. Okay. Now, you could also buy 15 or 50-year stays, and then each comes with a different number of tokens that you need to provide um to, you know, increase your level of, co- of accommodation. And to give you an example of what a luxury accommodation costs, 5 years in the luxury suite at a Fortitude Ranch, costs about $11,000 currently. For a little peace of mind, Paul, that doesn't seem so bad, the Spartan accommodations for five years kind of scares me a little bit. It's mainly really lame bunk beds that you have to sleep in, and you'll get like a footlocker with that. I was going to say, and I feel like a lot of gruel or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you also get discounts if you're buying for a couple or families. So that way, if you show up with your family, you'll need, you know, less per person. So it is economies of scale. Right. Well, and you would want more families to build group cohesion. Mm -hmm. A whole bunch of single men, you're going to turn into a a roving band of degenerates very quickly. Yeah, that's when Cormac McCarthy's The Road occurs with a bunch of cannibals running around meeting people. Yeah, right, right. Shout out to my 11th grade English teacher on that one. So, Chris, like I had said, the ancient world also had bunkers. So this isn't necessarily something new, right? We've been doing this for a really long time, just we for been... different types of reasons. Hey, as long as humans have been killing each other, you had a group of them who were running and hiding in the hills, baby.
0: And um, I went to this site called Tulum, which is right on the coast. This is a a, a site where the Maya people lived. Um peaceful tranquil on a beautiful blue sea and at, right at the at the end of the occupation of this place they started building these walls and the walls are, are haphazard I mean they, they look nothing like the, the gorgeous temples um, that you know comprise the the main part of the, the living space there and one of the theories that the archaeologists put forward is that when the when Europeans arrived and brought all of this disease with them. Uh, the Maya people had absolutely no idea what was happening to them, right. and the only thing they could imagine was that they were being attacked by other humans. Because you know the the disease is invisible, and so what do you do? You build walls very quickly right. to try and keep the the disease out. And I've started thinking about these these bunkers in a similar way. It's like uh, it's like our it's like our our society is diseased. Oh, I think and, it's... So, and so we've started building these spaces in anticipation of something, you know, an invisible threat, a sense of dread, a sense of unraveling, a sense of the unknown. If we were an archaeologist in a thousand years and we found these these places, we might interpret them in exactly
1: the same way. Dude, that was super galaxy-brained. Isn't th- This is the most big-brained episode, man. I am such a fan yeah. of Bradley Garrett. <laughs> that was actually really incredible. At such a great point that bunkers are a symptom of this disease that we see all over Western society, a breakdown of the institutions, and when you have a breakdown of the institutions, people take – control in whatever ways they can into their own hands and a way that a lot of people that we're seeing or at least some people are are building these bunkers to to hide away from when the whole thing finally collapses because there is a belief that that is coming that collapse is imminent yeah it's about the both the perception of collapse and the insecurity that are failing culture has created right where we right. no longer feel as if that the way that we're living life is sustainable and that can come on all sides of the political spectrum right because there are people on the right who are prepping because they think that the government's going to collapse in some way and there's a lot of people on the left who are uh who are prepping because they think the the climate and the ecosystem is going to collapse right and there's probably right. people that have a mixture of both you know? Yes. Yes. It's 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 a both and yeah. situation in this <laughs> well, case, which one gets us first, I guess, is the real question, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and here's the either one is going to lead to the other probably like yeah. as the climate gets worse, that's going to create more friction points in which war is more likely to happen. And the same thing too, when we have a government that's incapable of doing anything at all, we're not going to be able to resolve the issues that come from a worsening climate. So it's just, it's going to be this like vicious cycle of both slowly destroying each other. Uh, So that's really nice. Well, and the last thing they can do, the last thing they can do is create weapons. Mm -hmm. That's the last thing our government can truly do is create weaponry. And that's a bad sign too. That's all that we're able to do at this point is fund the military, nothing else. Yes, that's it, nothing else. No, we are incapable of any type of manufacturing in this country except advanced weaponry that can kill a ton of people, dude. You're gonna go off by the end of this, like, just get ready. I was as I was clipping it, I'm like, I'm gonna have to tell Chris to like reel it in because he's gonna be on his desk by the end. Yes, all right, so. A really interesting fact was that uh, he actually talks about the earliest bunkers that we have, which come all the way from the Hittites. Well, I, I I looked into.
0: I was trying to figure out when the earliest point in history was that people started burrowing into the earth to protect right. themselves and their possessions. Uh, and and what I found, I think, is the earliest cases is uh, in central Anatolia in Turkey, the the Hittites. Uh, started digging into the volcanic tusks there to build um, underground complexes. And you can go underground in these spaces that are, are – they're incredible spaces. Uh, they go hundreds of feet underground. They've got um, you know these ventilation shafts. I call them snorkels to the earth surface. Right, exactly <laughs> and, what they and are. You, and, and they, yeah, and they had um, uh, space down there for in one of these cities for 20,000 people. Wow. Including livestock, water, food, you know, everything that you would need to sustain the community. Paul,
1: have you seen pictures of this place? Yeah, it's actually really impressive. It's pretty much it's what you would think. Absolutely incredible. We'll put it in the show notes. If you haven't seen it, please click on it because the human engineering and ingenuity of this underground bunker is incredible. And to think that they did it, in this ancient time is incredible. And Paul, did you know that Graham Hancock believes that this is actually a much older system than even the Hittites? No, I did not know that Graham Hancock was involved at all. Yes, dude. He thinks that this this is much older and was actually built in the time of these meteoric showers that were happening in 10,000 B.C., well, re- regardless of whether or not it was, you know, related to, to Graham Hancock or not, uh, it is incredibly impressive. So the uh, Cappadocia network that he was referring to is a network of 40 underground cities, one of which was discovered in 1963 when a construction crew was trying to build a house and they accidentally sledgehammered into one of the tunnels. And they're like, oh, wait, we just discovered a giant cave network. Uh, and these these networks included wineries they had oil presses and they had room for stables and animals as well as uh, like giant stills for water too it's it was this crazy network to defend themselves against invading forces so they could just hide underground essentially i think it was created to keep themselves safe during uh, apocalyptic meteor showers paul but yeah no no matter what it was made for a bunch of people to hide for weeks on end, and interestingly enough, too, it was also used by early Christians who hid in the caverns during the second century. Right. And one of the things that uh, Bradley when they're being when they're being martyred by the Roman Empire at the time. Yeah, one of the thing that one of the things that Bradley postulates as well is that the resurrection story, which includes Jesus being buried in a tomb with the giant's uh, rock in front of it that gets rolled away, right that's actually how they blocked off the different sections of the tunnel system in case invading right. forces got in, they had these giants rocks. So he thinks that potentially the resurrection story was influenced in some way by these tunnels, which I thought was right. kind of a cool side side. Very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. So in terms of, shelters in the united states it started roughly during uh the cold war in yes. britain they actually made shelters during world war ii they had these like little tent shelters they would build in their backyard whenever you know there were bomb runs done by the germans um but in the united states it was the cold war that really started things off well i mean think about it until world war ii probably this whole city's being destroyed was unthinkable it didn't really happen. I mean, you occasionally got like something like the Civil War where Sherman burns down Atlanta and burns down Columbia and burns down Savannah, right? Like, yeah, that happened occasionally. But you didn't really prep against that. That was something that was pretty rare. World War II and the fire bombings of cities and stuff where people are actually starting to go underground into their metro systems and stuff like that going into bomb shelters that's the first time that you really even had to think about that which would be terrifying if just imagine where you live like you have nowhere to go the germans are just bombing right and you have to run underground or hide in a tin shelter that you build in your backyard right that's right so terrifying So in the United States, though, they start testing extended shelters during the Cold War, because a big question is, you know, you're going to have to stay down there for a couple of weeks. Is everyone down there going to just kill each other? And in the tests that they did
0: during the Cold War, there were
1: a number of tests done uh, both in the United States
0: and Germany, as I found in in the research for my book. Uh, People were able to survive absolutely fine and get along and cooperate. They could make it through two weeks without a problem. Because they knew there was an endpoint. Right. The, the the problem with the bunkers that are being built today is that if you're building for a ter- I mean, you know, a terrible disaster. Imagine you're building for, you know, an extinction level event. Whether it's a a total nuclear war or artificial intelligence uh, suddenly achieving escape velocity, or um, uh, an EMP, you know, a, a coronal mass ejection that wipes out all of our electricity for years. It's really difficult to imagine how you make it through that situation in an underground space. Uh, you, can, you can build a space, you can engineer a space uh, that technically will serve that function. But in terms of the the psychology of the, the passengers, if you will, you know, it, it's very difficult to engineer those space,
1: spaces. Eventually, you're going to go crazy, is what he's saying. Yeah, pretty much. Which is is a concern that I feel like a lot of people may not think about quite often, but especially if you're involving other people, I think what this kind of points to is one of the sicknesses at the heart of American society right now is that we don't really have a society or community. Right, yeah, The the communal aspect that's needed to create an underground world for weeks on end doesn't exist in america yeah the hittites apparently had it where they're like yeah we'll all be fine living underground for a while with twenty thousand other people but could you imagine living with your neighbors stuck in a bunker for an extended period of time like i bet you most of our listeners don't know their their neighbors names you know what i mean right because i don't know my neighbors names Right, right, yeah. Uh, now multiply that by ten thousand, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you hey, got a problem. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're you're getting close to a real issue here. That's yeah. such an interesting point. That's yeah, such an interesting point. Man, we really are tackling some ills in our society. Discussing bunkers. I know it's so interesting. You never would have thought it. Yeah. So another interesting developer, Chris, of these bunkers is based out of California, and he's already actively moved people into these bunkers, right? So we're kind of people getting are already living case. in these things. Yeah, he has communities that he's built already. This CEO of the Vivos Group, Robert Vecino, this California developer
0: who was behind something called X Point, um, he's kind of a fascinating character. But well, he uh, he, ev- he eventually bought a a. a... A uh, telephone routing station from the Cold War that was in in Indiana that was built underground, and this is a a super hardened structure that could actually withstand a nuclear strike. And he he built a bunker, and he's got 35 residents in there. And uh, I spent a couple of days in that bunker. It's it's quite impressive. And so, is it completed? It's completed, and it's and it's full. Um, there's some friction amongst the residents, um, as as you could imagine. You know, different people have different ideas about how the bunkers should be governed and what kind of defenses they should have. Um, But he did finish that one, and now he's working on a new facility in South Dakota. He bought um, 575 semi-subterranean concrete bunkers from the federal government. Uh, He's moving families into them, and he's got about 40 families in there now they've got running water and they're building a community
1: and it was i was there in the in the first days Paul's unbelievable to me that there are so many bunker businesses in the US it's apparently booming pun not intended but nice and not only that but people are actively living in these bunker communities already they they've just moved in there's always been a move back to the land movement in the U.S., right? You know, these these kind of communities that pop up in rural areas, homesteaders, things of that sort. Um, so I guess it's not too surprising that there would be these communities that would build up over time dedicated to the idea that we need to prep, we need to prepare against the likely you know, fall of the state and they'll uh, likely, you know, global apocalypse that's coming in whatever form that they believe. And I mean, the biggest problem too with these right now is that he get, Bradley Garrett talks a little bit about how there's already political unrest within the communities. And we don't even have the stressor of an actual apocalyptic event yet. Right. So, My question would be, if we're already having unrest and people are already not getting along together within these organizations and within these communities, what's going to happen when, you know, shit actually hits the fan? I actually disagree a little bit, especially in a community that small. I would think that the the stress from the outside would actually act as a cohesive unit. The reason that they're is such a lack of group cohesion is because there is no unifying enemy right now right there's the one guy that believes the ai the artificial intelligence is cause is going to cause the apocalypse? There's another one that believes it's going to be nuclear war with China or Russia or you know some other nameless enemy, right? Global jihad or whatever it is. Uh, there's another person that believes that the coronavirus was it, right? And so all these people have all these myriad of reasons to believe. You know, they all believe that the end is coming. They don't know when, they don't know what's going to cause it, and so there's all these arguments that can take place. It's only once the thing happens that I think the, the external forces would push the group together in somewhat a cohesive manner. But I'm sure you're right. In a lot of instances, too, it, if, they can't, if they can't work together now, how are they going to work together when shit really hits the fan? No, it is an interesting point, though, because it's almost like, uh, you know, the Watchman theory. You need a giant alien to invade right. for the U.S. and the USSR to get along. Right. Maybe when the apocalypse does occur, everyone is like, you know what? We should put our differences aside because we're all going to die. <laughs> that is, right. that is right. a possibility for sure. Right. And, and, and it's going to happen in some cases, and it's not going to happen in some cases. The cases where it ha- doesn't happen— those societies will die off. Those communities will die off. Those, The progeny of those potential offspring are not going to happen. It will be the groups who can figure out how to be, he- be a cohesive unit. That is what made humans humanity, right, was our ability to work together. The tribes that worked together in the very beginning were the most successful tribes. And were able to grow and uh, and and provide offspring that learned how to work together. And you know who is going to work together the best, Chris, and inherit the earth after the apocalypse? The meek, the Mormons. Oh, definitely, <laughs> big time. <laughs> we got a clip for it. Hold on, hold on. Who have uh, faith in each
0: other? And y- you mentioned the the uh, LDS Church. Um, you know, a lot of those people. This is. Uh, this is what makes their preparations work is that they're not prepping for themselves or for their families. They're prepping for the entire church community. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time there and I was, I was fairly confident that in a, um, an extinction level event, the <laughs> members of the Mormon church would be some of the last survivors. They they yeah. were very
1: competent. The whole religion was founded upon an existential war between the U.S. federal government and a small brigand of of Mormons in the middle of a desert. Like, their whole reason for being was a preparation against eventual death. And, like, that's something that I think we have to remember, too, right? Like, when we think of apocalypse, we generally have an idea of a head in our heads— of a global phenomenon. For the Mormons, it was a global phenomenon at the beginning. It was their whole religion, their whole reason of being. You know, all these people moved hundreds of miles through incredibly tough terrain to create this religious, you know, city, golden city on the hill and the federal government was trying to destroy them was trying to kill them was trying to end their way of life it was an apocalypse for the mormons that is how they start and that has that is infused within the blood of mormonism well and the entire idea of latter day saints too is that like it is the end times that are coming and and they're getting ready for it. And the other really important part too is that, you know, that entire history of Mormonism, along with, you know, Mormons today, they have a really strong sense of community. And I think, you know, what Bradley Garrett's talking about is that there's a lot of preppers who are only looking at survival for them and their family. But when you're looking at survival of the community, like you had said before, Chris, that is how humanity survived. We didn't survive by looking out only for ourselves. We survived because we had built communities and because we were able to support each other and that you thought of something bigger than yourself and not just like, oh, I need to survive three months. It's like, no, I need to make sure everyone around me survives three months. And ultimately that makes your chances of survival stronger, right? Because you have a community doing the same for you and also supporting you, which is a really interesting thought. And I think the Mormons, you know, there are a lot of Mormons who are prepping and they're probably going to make it uh, a lot longer than a lot of folks and they'll probably inherit the earth. So, you know, kudos, <laughs> kudos to the Mormons. And legitimately, I don't know if many of you knew this, the Mormons have the best survival gear. It is the cheapest food per pound in their survival buckets. So go get you a couple of LDS Mormon survival buckets of food. That's and here's free, the thing. That's a free, that's a freebie <laughs> Mormon church. I expect a, a payback, um, later down the road when the so, apocalypse comes when it comes to the other bunker communities though bradley is very skeptical of their chances uh you know it's people who can build things people who can
0: craft things uh people who can grow people who can who can hunt you know these are the people that you're going to trust in these kinds of communities and they're not the people who can afford to move into them in many cases right i think that's one of the one of the fatal flaws of these bunker communities is that um There's an assumption that we can buy our way out of these disasters, and that scales up all the way from the level of, you know, Robert Vecino selling bunkers to uh, people in Silicon Valley who are developing the technology that they know is going to be disastrous for our society, and uh, they think that they can – you know, if they have a private jet and some land in New Zealand, you know, they can just escape when – you know the, the shit hits the fan. Oh,
1: you can't thing? say that.
0: You said about word on the Please radio.
1: don't curse. Please don't curse on the radio, sir. Can't do that. But there is something to that, right? Like this capitalist mentality to exploit people's fears of the apocalypse are exactly the thing that tells us that this is a worthless endeavor. They are sucking. The reason to keep the whole movement going, the whole reason to keep humanity going is our ability to work together to create beautiful things. And when you individualize it, when it's like, I'm just going to look out for myself, what is the reason to keep on going when it's just you by yourself in the middle of nowhere in a desolate world of death around you? That doesn't sound like fun. (laughs) <laughs> it's some bad vibes there for sure. Not enjoyable. Now here's the thing though. If I have the $10 million bunker with all of my favorite movies in a cinema and a swimming pool and a shooting range, I could probably have fun for a couple years. I'll have, I'll have fun for a little bit. Couple of years. A couple yeah. Of years. Yeah. After that, right. it's you're like you're A done. couple <laughs> years of fun. Yeah. But yeah. And then eventually you just, you give up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he he also goes into a bit, Chris, about the government's reaction to bunkerism and how they've acted during the Cold War um, and afterwards as well, which I, I thought he had some really interesting thoughts here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean that that logic, that Cold War logic, I think was alienating for a lot of people because it was the first time that we realized that our government wasn't willing to or able to protect us from a threat that they had created We're the only nation in the world that has used nuclear weapons, and yet when the nuclear strategists like Herman Kahn went to the federal government and said, this is what we need to protect the U.S. population inside blast shelters, the government rejected those those figures and said, absolutely not, and then they turned it upon us to protect ourselves. They said it was our responsibility. Truman said that. Kennedy said that. Uh, and and it's gone on from there, and and we realize now, of course, that the government built bunkers for themselves. Right. And at the time, that was th- those were conspiracy theories, right? the government had built right. bunkers to protect themselves and their families and their aides. Now we know that's the truth. And we know that it's the truth that there's a rather large bunker under mar <laughs>
1: Yeah, there sure is. That's such an interesting point. That America's the only country to drop a nuclear bomb, yet we are probably the most fearful society in the world of a nuclear apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really interesting. And I I really enjoyed his take, too, on the government only looking out for themselves, because I think it goes back to the individualism that we're talking about, where even our government doesn't care about society. They right. care about protecting their own hides, right? Yes. Yes, a hundred percent. But this is this is the problem. This is the this is one of the roots of all the problems in American society is that our elites do not build society. Our current elites do not think about 10, 15, 20 years in the future. They are thinking about next quarter. They are thinking about what is it what, how much money can I get out of this thing and not how can I make the society better? How can I make the American people better? And you don't think that people pick up on that. It's spreads. It spreads. This grift culture was spread by our elites. So anyways, that's all I really got to say about that. Yeah. And just a quick call out too, because once again, a lot of this is really close to me here in Virginia, right across the border in West Virginia, there is a, uh, a very nice hotel called the Greenbrier. And underneath the super swanky hotel is a gigantic bunker built during the Cold War that could house all of Congress and the uh, executive branch and their families. It actually is set up to look like they're still in Washington. So the president and the speaker could all be there in front of their fancy desks and in front of these fancy backdrops. So it looks like they're still in D.C., when in reality, they would be hiding in a bunker underneath the Greenbrier in West Virginia. You can tour it nowadays, too. I'm actually going to go with my wife soon. It's got to be gigantic. It's huge. Huge, huge bunker to sustain a, a nuclear blast, yeah. That's incredible. While all this was happening, while all this being built, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy all shot down the opportunity to build fallout shelters for the American community, which meant that they said, Kennedy literally said, Americans need to build them themselves. He told Americans to go build their own fallout shelters instead of funding it with federal dollars, instead funding with federal dollars the ability for all of the government to hide while everyone else dies. Thanks, JFK! (laughs) Isn't that wild? That's so wild. You know, meanwhile, they're building a state of the art underground bunker that is literally miles upon miles. And they can't even, like, say, we'll build a little tornado shelter in your backyard, America. Yeah. And then they're gambling with everyone's lives with their geopolitics constantly goading the USSR because they're going to be fine. It's the rest of us. They're totally fine. They're totally, they're like, we got a great place in the hills of, of West Virginia. This is great. Have you seen the green briar? Gorgeous. It is gorgeous. In the fall, beautiful. All right. So we got one more rant, Chris, because it's not just about. I just love seasons. The government. It's also about corporations and the rich.
0: Well, we, we are, there's no doubt. we're in an age of of rampant inequality the people who have the means are making absurd preparations to protect themselves and um it's it's very strange that we turn on each other rather than turning on them right Mm -hmm. that we that we see them as our saviors you know bezos is going to take us to mine asteroids and richard branson is going to you know create uh galactic tourism Elon Musk is going to help us colonize Mars. Why don't we fix the problems here now? Right. These people right. have incredible resources, and they can help to fix the problems that we're facing now. And instead, they're, they're focusing on these weird pipe dreams, whether it's the, the colonization of space or resurrection of, of, of you know a consciousness in a robotic body in some future that we can barely imagine. Well, what, these people do not live in the same world we do. And just like, you know, we we <laughs> vented our frustration on those government elites in the 1980s in the form of the the survivalist culture that you know uh, harbored all of this anti-government sentiment. We should feel the same way towards the CEOs of these corporations who have absolutely no regard for for uh, humanity, for our existence, for our care they only care about their bottom line and they think that they have an escape plan for themselves, but they really don't. You know, what they what they have is a fantasy that they hold in their minds and a fantasy
1: that doesn't include us. Dude, Bradley is walking down the true path. Dude, that he was incredible. Is, he is my he's up there with uh, Professor Masters as one of my favorite guests on Coast, honestly. That was so good. And the last line where he talks about them building a future that doesn't include us, I think just sums it right. all up perfectly. We are not yeah. involved in any of yeah. their plans, be it yeah. you know Congress, be it Bezos and Musk, the the normies, or as you know Kanye West, infamous anti Semitic, now calls them the NPCs. We're all NPCs to them. Right. We aren't right. real. Yes. Yes. Well, we're we're chattel, right? Yeah. We're we're you know, we're not even pawns on the board. Mm-hmm. We don't deserve to be on the chessboard. You know, this whole like they're gonna make us eat insects, and it's like they don't care if we eat. <laughs> what are you talking about? They're gonna make us eat insects. We're gonna starve to death. What are you talking about? Yeah, they're gonna put us in some pods. No, they're not. We're gonna. We're all gonna be homeless wandering bands dude what are you talking about yeah that's one of the biggest problems with with conspiracies is people it's almost self-important in a way it's like no the elites don't actually care they don't (laughs) care at all we're all gonna be on the metaverse and it's like no you will be dead (laughs) this zombie apocalypse where you live in this like giant castle surrounded by a moat that's impenetrable is not gonna happen buster Well, that was our interview with Bradley Garrett on his book, Bunker, What It Takes to Survive the Apocalypse. Like I said, $18 on Amazon. I haven't read it, but I feel like it's worth picking up. Worth a read, at least. Yeah, I don't know. I think this guy's great. I think he's a ton of fun. Um, Chris, on a scale of one to five abandoned nuclear silos, what do you give our good friend, Bradley? Easy five nuclear silos. Not only did we learn more about the world of bunkers, we learned more about ourselves, Paul. <laughs> we learned about society at large, Paul, and why our elites are awful. And you know, that's always going to give five nuclear abandoned bunkers from me. Always. I knew this one was going get, to get you revved up as I was listening to it. Like that speech at the end, I was like, Chris is going to get revved on this, dude. Oh yeah, dude. I, I'm, I'm waving my, uh, my upraised fist flag right now. And, uh, we're going to fight the elite through some kind of bunker mechanism. <laughs> I'm also gonna get it, give it five silos. I think this guy is awesome. Uh, like I said, I haven't read his book, but I want to read it now after this interview. I was like, he, dude, this guy, galaxy brain for sure, big galaxy brain, love it, dude, big brain on Brad. I was expecting to hear more about you know a lot of you know crazy folks who were you know prepping and whatnot, which we heard about some people who were doing some pretty luxurious things. But, yeah, you're right. It's it's more about what does this mean for society? What does this say about us as people uh, in a community? And, like, here's the thing, dude. I'm kind of a prepper, right? Yeah. I have an emergency supply of food. I have um, emergency medicine and emergency toolkits because my apartment got hit by a tornado, and I also got hit by a really bad ice storm, and I'm paranoid now about the weather. Right. So, like, right. I have enough gear to survive seven days without power or the ability to leave the house. Right. Um, I'm like, that's prepping, dude. I'm prepping. You might as well be Mormon. I, you know what, dude? I may be better off if I am, honestly. I really am convinced they're, they're going to live longer than all of us. Well, you know, South Park said they're the only ones going to hell. <laughs> and the Mormons were right. The Mormons, everyone. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been Coast to Coast PM, and we will be back with more next week. All conspiracy, all the time. Later.